Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I'm actually going to tell you about a story I had never heard of, and it occurred in the 2000s, so it really shocked me that I hadn't heard of this really bizarre case before. Before I get started, I want to thank you guys so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. This is something that I love to do. I've always really enjoyed true crime, and I really enjoy sharing true crime stories with the true crime community. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget that you can check out my Facebook, Storytime Slayer. Or you can go to my Instagram profile, story underscore time underscore slayer. And you can also feel free to email me at storytimepods at gmail.com. I love getting feedback and hearing from you guys. So do not hesitate. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review, preferably five stars. But honesty is always the best policy. All right. With all that out of the way, thanks so much for being here. And let's get started. So this is the case of the married Porco family that actually were murdered by an axe murderer. This took place November 15th, 2004, which is really surprising why I didn't know about it. This took place in Del Mar, New York, and it was 52-year-old Peter Porco, a division court clerk, and his wife, Joan Porco, who was a speech pathologist. They'd been married for 30 years and had two sons. One was in his early 20s, like I think 23 or so, maybe 24. And then their youngest son was 21 and in college. They were attacked in their own home with an ax that was found in their master bedroom floor at the time of the discovery. Peter was found dead by the front door with a massive wound to his head, and Joan was found lying in her bed, totally drenched in blood with severe head and face trauma. However, she was alive. Now, they were discovered the same morning that they were attacked by a court officer who was sent for a welfare check. Apparently, Peter was an extremely dependable, responsible, and reliable worker, so it was really concerning that he did not show up for work on that Monday morning, and the office sent a county court officer. Unfortunately, Peter Porco did not survive, and he was found dead at the scene. However, Joan was alive, surviving this brutal attack. So just to make everybody aware of how insane it is that Joan survived this, she lost an eye, part of her skull, her jaw was broken, and she had great facial disfiguration that required multiple surgeries. It's very sad, but she was literally hit in the head and face with an axe, you guys, and survived. What happened is somebody came into their home as they were sleeping, disabled the alarm code at 2.14 a.m., grabbed the axe that belonged to the family in their garage, and then bludgeoned the couple in bed. By the way, they locked the dog in the basement, and it shows that the phone wires were cut at like 4.54 a.m. based on the phone company records. It's pretty likely that they became unconscious from the blows to their head with an axe, but um, Peter the husband, he actually woke up and he started to get ready for work completely unaware that he'd been attacked despite the fact that there was blood oozing everywhere in a very traumatic bloodbath in his bedroom. He had been hit in the part of his brain that like processes information using logic. So he actually got up, got dressed, got ready for work. 
um, leaving blood and blood smears all over the house. Okay, then you can see where he went downstairs to make coffee, he made his lunch, and whatever else. And he was actually headed out the front door when he collapsed and eventually died. So now it's up to investigators to figure out who would do this and why. So they look at the couple's life, you know, how accessible was their home? Did they have any enemies who had access to them like this and who would benefit from their death? One thing was very clear, both their sons would definitely benefit from this. They had two sons, Jonathan, who was their older boy, he was a Navy Lieutenant, and Christopher, the younger son, as I said, he was a college student at the time of the attack. The family had an alarm system that very few people knew the code to, and then there was the murder weapon. See, that was the family's axe. So it was already at the house prior to this attack. Few people would know that the axe was kept in the garage. And most random or outside attackers would come with their own weapon, right? With Jonathan saying that both him and Christopher were very much aware that they were the sole inheritance to their parents... They, you know, definitely took a second closer look at them. And then lastly, the family dog that I mentioned that was locked in the basement. See, the dog usually slept in the basement or in the garage. And the dog was found shut in there at the time of the crime. It sounds very possible that somebody would have needed that knowledge prior to committing this crime. The boys were looking like really good suspects because... They knew where the axe was. They knew where the dog slept and where to shut the door. They knew the alarm code and they were the sole beneficiaries. I really looked out on this and found a lot of really random cool information to, to make this story all come together because the Albany Times Union posted a video to their YouTube and it's like an hour and a half question tell all about this case with multiple people from both sides of it. They did it like a 15 year later thing. So they did it in 2019, but it's basically an interview with like a few people from the prosecution's team and a few people from the defense's team about the investigation. It does have an investigator involved too in the questioning, but it's like about the investigation and the court case and the evidence and the different opinions. It was really interesting. So Basically, this case became a very large scoped investigation because Peter and Joan's sons were well established outside of the local jurisdiction. So it actually became more of a state case, which needed more resources. And so this actually really benefited becoming a state police case. The original local investigators still actively worked and were credited for being very much dedicated and involved in this case, just for the record. This wasn't that the state police did not care. It just needed more attention than they could afford or give it. I believe Christopher, the Porco's youngest son, became the prime suspect like rather quickly. The only other theory was that this could have been a mob payback because Peter, the husband, he had a relative that was an uncle that happened to be in the mob. And then another theory was that while Peter was a law guardian, a while back in his past, he was the law guardian in a specific case under a particular judge and they oversaw a father lose a custody battle. And that dad made a lot of threats against Peter and the judge. So the theory would be 
that it was that guy who was threatening Peter or another person who felt Peter was responsible for their legal loss while he was a law guardian and they were like extracting revenge. These theories were questionable because, you know, a hitman came in with no weapon, turned off the alarm, put up the dog. Um, okay, great. Makes sense. Like there's no way somebody would get that lucky to get away with a murder by like pure coincidence and chance. Okay. And it's, and it's very evident that Christopher's family was immediately split and like they themselves instantly thought Chris did it. Some members of the family literally sat really far away from him and were whispering about Christopher while they were all at the hospital for Joan. So this is like immediately after the accident. So, so weird. So weird was that Christopher was on campus when he heard the news about his parents. He said a reporter stopped him to comment on his parents' death and he said he had no idea what she was asking about or what was going on and he actually called the he actually called the police department very casually himself. Here, I'm going to play the 911 call for you guys. So, remember his story is that a reporter came up to him and asked him to comment on his parents' brutal murder and he was like what are, you, what are you talking about? And so he calls the police department. Here's the recording. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Borgo. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. Hey, Chris, whereabouts are you? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, and are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. Let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you. Okay. Uh, now, as far as, when was the last time you said you came down to saw your parents? Uh, about three weeks ago. I, it was on a weekend. I can give you a day. I have to, I have to figure it out. I'm not really sure. Okay, but about three weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, and the email, what, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, you emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response? Oh, yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. Uh, my dad at work. Okay. Uh, about uh, college loan stuff. Okay. Are you going to go right to Albany Med? Uh, I don't know. Where, where, I don't even know where my mom is. But... Yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay. Do, do you know her condition? Uh, in... No, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. Okay. Because uh... when you get there, I'll come and see if there's anything I can do for you. Okay. All right? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Yep, I can Okay, so that clip was from like a 48-hour mystery special they did over this whole case. Okay, so we should for sure mention that I think the 911 call had a lot to do with police's instinctually fast suspicions of Christopher being guilty for this crime. So when they talked to him, they asked him why the alarm would be shut off at the family home. And so like another reason why Chris was quickly a suspect was because his answer was that every night the dog would wake up and need to go outside to pee at like two to 3 AM routinely. However, in Joan, the wife, Chris's mother and her first interview, she said the dog never woke up at night. And the alarm history went back. So funny thing, in alarm systems, they have a history of any activity that's happened. Anytime it's been shut off, 
shut on, activated, deactivated, whatever. And it goes back 15 days. And the only day that alarm was shut off in the middle of the night was the night that Peter and Joan were attacked when the alarm was turned off at 2.14 a.m. So they found it really suspicious that Christopher made up this, or maybe they found it really suspicious that Christopher said had this claim of his dad waking up to let the dog out when if the dog hadn't done it in 15 days it was very unlikely it was that routine so this is a really good time also to mention Christopher's past and all the shit that he'd done and this is kind of what unfolded quickly in their investigation also here's the deal somebody can be a criminal and not be a murderer right so there's a debate on whether his past has any relevancy because none of his past crimes were violent. He does have a seedy past, though, so at least three times he stole items and listed them for sale on eBay. Oh, and by the way, he would steal them from his own family. Like, he cut the screen on the garage once before and made it look like a break-in and stole Joan's laptop and then posted it on eBay. The sale actually got traced and he got caught. But he did this other times too. The third time he decided to do this scam, he never actually sent out the items, but he continued to sell them on eBay. And then he would email the buyers posing as his brother, Jonathan, and he would tell people that Christopher had passed away and that they couldn't get these items mailed to them, even though they paid the money and the money was accepted by Christopher, he did this scheme over the course of like a couple years. He was doing shit like this. So this wasn't just like one wild hair he got up his ass. This was like who he was. He was a scammer. And police found that really relevant to the investigation. Some people say it's irrelevant because it's it's unrelated crimes. Anyway, Christopher had not been getting along great with his family due to how they were disappointed in his academics and that his scams, he'd gotten caught three times doing the theft. Okay, so he was kind of falling apart as a scammer. And I'm going to let you guys know that the scamming was not just financial. Okay, so we'll start out when he first goes away to college, right? His first semester at Rochester, he begins flunking and he was going to be sent home. But a dean like swooped in from the school and suggested that they just give Chris some more time to adjust and that... You know, he just needs more time and he'll get better. But Chris never improves his grades. His dad basically says, like, I'm not going to keep flipping the bill if you don't get it together, Chris. And his mom suggests that maybe he should come home and he would do better going to, like, a community college or a school nearby, junior college. So Chris packs it up and leaves this party life, college lifestyle he was living. And he goes to the junior college Hudson Valley. Now, Google puts Hudson Valley like 20 minutes from Del Mar, New York, which is where this took place. And I believe because of that, that he probably lived with his family at this time. He supposedly got his grades up and was able to transfer to Rochester. However, he did not actually get his grades up. He faked a transcript to get in. And what's even worse is his dad got the transcript in the mail while he while he, meaning Christopher, was away on like a European vacation or some bougie-ass shit. And his dad saw that he was failing, and Chris actually swindled him and was like, no, no, there was an error. Somebody put my test grades in wrong, blah, 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 blah. The lowest grade I have is actually like 
a really high B on one test, okay? Totally BSs, tricks Rochester and everything, and he actually gets a transfer to get back in. So, meanwhile, Chris, like, sort of fooled his family about school, but they were figuring out his financial fraud. It was starting to catch up with him. Like, for one, Peter's account on eBay was frozen, and that, come to find out, was because Chris was using the same address, and email won't let that shit happen because of scamming. So, that's kind of one thing that raised a red flag. And for a long time, they would just accept whatever BS excuse Christopher gave to them, (sighs) which is so annoying. My in-laws do that with my brother-in-law. Listen, this is just, let's just make this like a story time podcast rule. Do not let people lie to you. Like call them out. So eventually Peter had enough of Chris lying and weird things were happening. So Christopher it turned out was getting like all kinds of credit card bills in the mail and something weird was going on with his finances. So Peter, after getting tired of Chris BSing him all the time, he just decided, fuck it. I'm going to figure it out myself. So here's what Peter found out by calling like the financial institutes that were sending him bills and such like that is that Chris was forging Peter's signature to use Peter as a co-signer to open up more lines of credit for Chris. He even used his dad's signature and credit to co-sign on this like yellow Jeep Wrangler he bought. Dude, my mom would kill me. There is proof that his dad knew and said something to him because there was an email thread. And in the email thread between them, they communicated via email a lot. So weird. So email was all the rage. In the emails, the dad said that he was going to press charges if this shit happened again. So, so far to this point where the dad got mad and said he would press charges is that Chris had opened up first a line of credit with Peter as a co-signer. Then he also co-signed for the yellow Jeep and he took out like substantial student loan debt. I think like 30 grand or something with his dad co-signing for all that. That is crazy. And if you heard in the 911 call at the very end, they mention some emails over student loans. Okay, so the emails were about Chris's dad getting pissed off about this student loan BS and that he better not take out any more as Peter as a co-signer. In the same chain of emails, Peter is urging Christopher to come home so they can like have a coming to Jesus about everything that's going on. And Christopher has managed to like keep putting it off and putting it off. And he probably kept putting it off because he knew things were about to completely crumble and whatever was left of this free ride he was getting while he was partying and not keeping his grades up was definitely coming to an end. I think he didn't want to face the music. So this is theorized as his motive of why police are narrowing in on Chris. All these things are adding up and they're like, maybe he did it because he was getting caught up in all his shit and he could have definitely used the money to fix all this and he would have his parents out of the way. So Chris had an informal interview with police and uh, 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 uh. Unfortunately, this interview was thrown out, okay, because an attorney actually arrived to the police station on behalf of Chris, and the police went into the interview room that they had Chris in, and rather than saying, like, so-and-so is here saying he's your attorney, is that true, do you need to speak with your attorney, they said, hey, is so-and-so your attorney, 
And Christopher was like, no, that guy's um, a friend of my dad's. I don't think he could even be my attorney. And so Chris obviously did not understand that the man was there representing him. He thought this was just like a question in their random line of questioning. So rather than clarify, the police actually asked if he still wanted to answer questions. Um, And he was like, yeah. And so they continued to do so, not actually making him clear of his attorney being there to represent him. We do know in this informal interview that he told police he parked his yellow Jeep somewhere other than campus where he normally parked it. And he still slept, though, in the dorm lounge all night. Apparently, he had, like, promised his bed to a higher-ranking paternity brother for, like, a frat or something. I guess he's a frat boy. And so with that being the deal, he was going to sleep in the dorm lounge. Okay, but here's the thing is... He'd also made some really damning statements in that informal interview, and they're never going to be released, and no one will ever know what they were because since they didn't actually do the proper channel of telling him his attorney was there and available to him, this whole interview was considered poisonous fruit. (sighs) Fortunately, Chris told enough people, though, that he had slept in the dorm lounge all night that this part police were able to still use so he told friends family anybody who asked that he was sleeping in his college dorm room lounge when investigators followed up they figured out that night that the porcos were murdered everyone in Finn's dorm had actually decided to have a movie night in the lounge room and when they questioned those students they were adamant that Christopher was not there that night at all they remember that they all watched the movie Shrek 2 And some of them actually testified before the grand jury to get Chris indicted. With this information, the police were actually viewing hours of surveillance where they were finally able to find a video of Chris's yellow Jeep getting on a specific toll road that leads like in and out of New York. I'm not familiar with the area, but um, they did say that this Jeep was not parked where he said it was. And it was actually on camera leaving town at 1030 p.m. It did not re-enter the New York State Thruway, heading to Rochester, back where his college is, until 5.12 a.m. Oh, and by the way, it's not questionable if this was the Jeep. It was 100% sure the Jeep because of, like, decals and identifiable markings. The license plate was not identifiable, though, in surveillance, but there was enough other things on the Jeep that were unique to the Jeep itself. Could not be confused with another yellow Jeep. Was it doable? Could Chris have driven to his parents' house the night that they were murdered? Yeah, I looked it up. His college was like 230 miles away from the town his parents lived in. And on Google Maps, that's like a three and a half to four hour drive. By the way, some of the most damning evidence in this whole investigation, like really narrowing in on Chris, was that there was an eyewitness to his yellow Jeep being outside his parents' driveway at 4 a.m., Apparently, the neighbor worked really odd hours, (laughs) which I can totally relate to because I work overnights. Anyway, he worked really odd hours, and that's why he was up driving at 4 a.m. And the yellow Jeep stood out to him because apparently Chris would speed through the neighborhood. And this guy was like, oh, my God, that fucking guy's back. So investigators decided that Christopher was their guy and... The whole thing about this is this has been an extremely controversial case because it's been made with no forensic evidence. It's based solely around one person and there's not really any evidence to prove this is what happened. So this is kind of 
Chris's defense. Now, Chris was charged for the murder of his father and the attempted murder of his mother, November 4th, 2005. So this is almost a year later. He was actually let out on bond. His mom bonded him out. Okay, we will get to that. Um, Now, there was no forensic evidence and the crime scene was a blood bath. Okay, this was an axe attack, but there was absolutely no blood evidence in Christopher's Jeep. Okay, and this was like one of Christopher's greatest defenses because it's important to know the Jeep wasn't clean because it had been like professionally or recently cleaned. The Jeep was like a normal, messy college guy's Jeep. It was dirty. It had a bunch of stuff inside, but there was not a single drop of blood anywhere at all in this Jeep. So how could such a bloody, messy crime scene allow him to get in his car and not have any blood transfer? So... (laughs) since we're talking about the Jeep. Something weird about the Jeep is actually after the police were done, they put the Jeep back together and gave it back to Chris while he was out on bond and he drove it the whole time he was on bond. He did not get a different car. He even drove to the courthouse for his murder trial in this Jeep. Some people argue that due to the angle of the axe and the blood trajectory that there was not as much blood splatter or blood pulling as you would think during the actual attack the house was actually a bloodbath because Joan and Peter had been bleeding out for hours and remember Peter was like up walking around in fact blood splatter shows that there wasn't a wide scope of blood splatter around the crime scene itself also Christopher had worked at a veterinarian place for a period of time when the employer testified on Christopher's behalf he was questioned on if Chris was familiar with preventing cross-contamination of fluids due to the surgical work they did on animals at the veterinary place and he actually testified that Chris was and this made people question if he could have gotten away with a careful cleanup and no cross-contamination I mean, absolutely, I think he could have, especially if he had the right tools from the veterinarian's office to keep from cross-contaminating after surgical procedures with animals. Oh my God, and this was in his own house? Yeah. Weird. During the trial, Jonathan, his older brother, would not look at him at all during his testimony. He said that their relationship was seriously strained and that people described John as to be like really cold in regards to his brother. He definitely gives off the vibe that he thinks his brother did it. He won't even look at him. I'm just going to presume that John had an airtight alibi, which he did. He was said to have been in South Carolina stationed in the Navy for work. So interesting. Like I said, Joan was actually convinced her son was innocent. She was the one who gathered the money and bailed him out. And his bail bond was 250 grand. She even testified on his behalf. But there's some really weird evidence that was entered. It's um, it's actually referred to as the head nod. And it can go either way, whoever persuades you more. So I'm going to explain it to you. Although Joan was in really awful shape after attack, I mean, her jaw was literally partially broken off. She'd had her head sliced in the middle with an axe. She seemed lucid, though, before surgery. Like, her underwear were slightly exposed, and she had the awareness to, like, yank her shirt down so that she wouldn't feel and be exposed. Okay, so while they're getting her ready, this is something they said in that interview that I mentioned from YouTube. I think they probably mean ready for surgery, but the detective gets the son's names, and he asks the doctor if he can just quickly ask Joan some questions. Important reminder, Joan was a speech 
pathologist. A speech pathologist is somebody who takes someone with a speech impediment or difficulty communicating and they help them learn and do away with the impediment to where they can effectively communicate. So she could think of ways to communicate, right? What Joan did was she slightly nodded. Supposedly, it's questionable because remember she had such traumatic injuries, but supposedly she slightly nodded and then she used her finger to motion up and down for yes and left and right for no. So the detective asks her, do you know who did this? And she nods and finger gestures yes. He asks if it was Jonathan and she does no. He asks if it was Christopher and she said yes. However, this was always really questionable evidence because Joan later had no recollection of this ever happening or her attack, and she adamantly believed that Christopher was innocent. One expert says it's very believable and humanly possible that she did do this, but paramedics never seem to be on the exact same page when recalling the events that happened, and another expert for the opposite side of the case testified that with her head injuries it was in fact impossible for her to um, have said or done this so regardless it is allowed into evidence and it's very very argued over a piece of evidence of course if it's true definitely supports Christopher being guilty but if it's made up it's like oh bad police work is this true or not I don't know Christopher did not testify and here's the reason why So do you remember when I said in Chris's first interview that he actually had an attorney, he just wasn't aware of that, so the state was not allowed to use his testimony? Apparently, he made a very damning statement, and it was so damning that they knew if he got on the stand, he would be asked to repeat it, and they could not risk him repeating that statement. And it kills me because I want to know so bad what he said, but... Because we all want to know, and it would probably be really damning, they decided to not have him testify, and we'll never know. The court case actually began June 27th of 2006, and it was moved to Orange County for hopes of a more fair trial. The jury began deliberating August 10th, and they came back with a verdict in less than a day. The verdict was read and Christopher was found guilty and sentenced to a minimum of 50 years. I am telling you guys right now, I think he is the most guilty person I've ever covered on Storytime Podcasts. Like way more, way more instinctively guilty to me than like Scott Peterson, for instance. I'll put him up there with as guilty as Casey Anthony. Okay, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode I look forward to talking to you guys next week. And seriously, I mean, this guy axed his own parents. So guys, watch your back. Have a good week. Bye.